0: You'll turn with me to Isaiah chapter one, verse one. Uh Isaiah's in your Old Testament. He's been called the Prince of the Prophets. The book has been called the Mount Everest of Bible prophecy. It's listed first, you know, your first seventeen books are historical books, Genesis through Esther, and then you've got wisdom books, uh, Job through Song of Solomon, I mean Job through Song of Solomon, and then Isaiah through Malachi. Are the prophetic books of the Old Testament, and Isaiah is placed first not for chronology, but because it's the longest and the most profound. And many see it as uh, the most significant book of the Old Testament. I don't like to make those kind of distinctions, but I can see why they might say that. Uh, we're going to. Wouldn't it be fun, you know, if you've never been to, um, um, I don't know, let's say Houston? When Debbie and I got married. At a very young age, age 20, and I always say she married me under false pretenses because I was a biology major, pre-dental, who ended up in dental school in Houston uh, and, and ended up a preacher in Oklahoma. So uh, we got married and moved to Houston, and uh, we were little kids in a big town. But we kind of got uh, the lay of the land of Houston, and that was 44 years ago, and now it's just kind of totally Gigantic—it was big then to our eyes, but uh, we know where the major highways are. We have a big-picture, synthetic conception. At least I do, because uh, I do the driving when we go through there now, and I kind of know, can figure out where everything fits together because I have a, a sense of the top of the jigsaw puzzle box. I always like to say, "What's the most important part of a five-thousand-piece, complicated jigsaw puzzle?" And the answer is what—it's the box top because it tells you that's the most important piece because the little pieces, uh, you need to relate to them, relate them to each other and to the whole. And if you don't have the box, all the blue pieces you're going to think are the sky, but maybe the sky is gray in this picture and the blue pieces are a pond in the bottom left corner. You know that if you're aware a peg of the jigsaw puzzle box. You don't know that if you just got a bunch of pieces. So a lot of times, in the same way we walked through the whole Old Testament a few weeks ago, uh, so you could see the whole Old Testament story in one unit, we're going to do a, a kind of a flyover of the book of Isaiah, and I hope it whets your appetite to read through it. I mean, David's a little bit imposing, 66 chapters. I mean, it's just a huge book, and I think its size kind of can intimidate us. But once you kind of see what he's doing, I think it'll be uh, exciting for you, more interesting for you to actually read through the book. So uh, we're going to see the book overall basically... Talks about the amazing grace of the unbelievably great one true triune God, centered on the Christ who's coming. Yeah. All kinds of mechanical problems here today. Now, before we dive into that, let me fix my computer here. Let's pray for our teachability to God's Word. Let's pray for the teacher. This isn't about the teacher. Let this be about the teaching, the content of the text. And we pray that the Holy Spirit who inspired this text and preserved it, and we'll show you how we know he preserved it, uh, would illuminate to to our hearts and our minds today. But also, as we pray for teachability, let's pray for our uh, troops, peace officers, and firefighters. And uh, that's ground zero, and there's some of our active military we're very uh, aware of and love very much. Uh, Cade was here last week, you know, and I should have mentioned specifically. He had him on the collage there. I guess he probably noticed. He's a good-looking soldier, isn't he? So anyway, uh, Zane uh, Britton, if you would pray for our teachability and for those who protect and serve us as we dive into Isaiah. You know, we like to start something uh, that will warm up your capacity for abstract thought. And last week, I got so much, so much love for these puns with punch because people said they were actually funny and stuff, and. I guess usually my stuff's not that funny, but uh, if you missed it last week, you should have been here, because uh, that's what they were. When a Frenchman was asked if he played video games, he said, we. I uh, didn't believe it when the highway department told me my dad was a thief, but when I got home, all the signs were there. And what do you do when chemists die? Bury them. So, because the the, the puns seem so popular I'm going to show you uh, three kind of pun-like names for restaurants. These are real restaurants. These aren't uh, make-believe Photoshop kind of names for restaurants. So this is a a burger joint, and the name of the restaurant is Burgatory. Not Purgatory, Burgatory. And then this is a a restaurant called the Garden of Eaton. (laughs) The Garden of Eaton. Not Eden. And then my favorite was, uh, Vincent Van. Yeah. This is Vincent Van Donut. (laughs) Okay, let's do a big picture flyover of the book of Isaiah. And we're gonna show you how the book of Isaiah has real parallels with the overall Bible itself. We're talking about the flow of thought of the book of Isaiah. Touch on some mind-blowing truths in the book, and then focus on the hero, the main character of Isaiah. Right. So let's look first at the book of Isaiah and how it seems to parallel amazingly with the overall Bible. Um, there are sixty-six chapters to the book of Isaiah. It's one reason nobody wants to read it; it looks it's just too intimidating. And uh, Eric's challenged me to preach through Job in twenty eighteen, and I'm praying about doing it maybe in twenty twenty. Now, now I'm really. I, when I get a challenge like that, I always feel like, golly, you know, maybe I should really do that, and I, I'm really considering it strongly, but we're going to do 2 Peter first after the new year. But uh, yeah, 66 chapters. Uh, there are 66 books in the Bible. Interesting, isn't it? The book of Isaiah has two main sections thematically. Uh, the first 39 chapters, we'll show you how that works in a minute, and then chapters 40 through 66. And it just so happens to be 39 books in the Old Testament and 27 books in the New Testament, just like you've got 39 chapters in the first part of Isaiah and 27 in the second part. Uh, in the first part of the book of Isaiah, the emphasis is on Judah's sin and need for restoration under the Mosaic Covenant. And uh, in the overall Old Testament for Christians, uh, the book emphasizes uh, human sin, human mortality and the need for all of us for salvation from God salvation is of the Lord and then the second part of the book of Isaiah chapters 42-66 emphasizes salvation in the coming Christ and the New Testament emphasizes that salvation is found in Christ who came the first time as the Lamb of God he's going to come back as the Lion of the tribe of Judah and then you go on the book of uh, Isaiah starts with a fact, rebellion by Judah against God and his prophetic messengers. The Bible begins with a fact, the fall of Adam and Eve. The book of Isaiah ends with a promise, the renewal of the Jews in the land, both short-term and long-term. The Bible itself has a great ending, and you need to read the end in the Bible a lot. The ending of the Bible is Revelation 21 and 22 And it shows you God's not finished yet. The universe we live in is badly broken. It's messed up. It's been distorted. Bad things happen to good people. And even worse, lots of good things happen to bad people. But God's not done with his purposes for permitting this moral universe where angels and anthropoi heavenly hosts and human beings make all kinds of moral choices, good, bad, and ugly. But when God gets done with with his purposes for permitting that, He's going to get us to the best of all possible universes. Ken, we do not live in the best of all possible universes right now. One less abortion, one less rape, one less drug deal. you got a better universe. I think this is the best universe achievable with moral creatures, but it's not the best of all possible universes. Uh, the best universe doesn't have cancer. The best universe doesn't have rape. The best universe doesn't have wars and rumors of wars. The best universe is the one described in the end, of the ending of your Bible, Michelle. You need to read it. Uh, you know, I'm starting to. I'm starting to think what I. I think the Lord is telling me I need to stop watching OSU football games on live television. If I can't be there in person, which we were were there yesterday, um, just start taping them, and then start at the end and see how it works out. And if we win, then I'll go back and watch the game. If we lose, I don't want to see it, you know? Uh, so sometimes starting with the end can be very helpful. And you need to be encouraged by occasionally reading Revelation twenty-one, twenty-two, and realize if you have trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you're going to be there, okay? Joe, you're going to be there. And it's not going to stop. It's going to be great, and it's going to be awesome. In fact, it's difficult to describe in human words but Revelation 21:22 does the best possible way, uh, attempt to do that. Yeah, so we uh, start with facts that are bad end with promises in both Isaiah the book and the Bible as a whole. And the overall message, I think, uh, are very similar. Isaiah is saying, "The Lord is both holy and loving. He will restore a remnant of his people who trust in him and in His Messiah, Jesus Christ. And the overall Bible is basically saying, the holy and loving God will judge sin." And God's judgment isn't pretty, but it's always preceded by God's grace. And save all those who believe in him slash his son. So there's a lot of parallels there. And we could say more. You could do a whole message on those parallels. But I think that's the first thing I'd like to introduce you to as we do this flyover of the book of Isaiah. Now, you're looking at Isaiah chapter 1, verse 1. Uh, the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amoz, concerning Judah and Jerusalem which he saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Now, those names are stressing he was a historical figure who lived in real time, who made real prophecies short-term that we can validate actually happened, and made long-term prophecies we're waiting to happen now. Uh, now, let's put Isaiah on a, on a map, as it were, on a, on a chart. And remember, we walked through the whole Old Testament a couple weeks ago. But basically, let's start here. After several hundred years of bondage in Egypt, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Abraham, and it was confirmed Isaac and Jacob, Abraham was given a foundational promise for God's purposes for humanity. And he said, I'm going to create a great nation out of you, even though you're too old to have children, you and your wife. Uh, you will be given a land tract we call Israel, and your people will be a blessing to the whole world, primarily because your seed, singular, will be the Savior of the world. So those people who are descended from Abraham, who who received that promise, have been in bondage in Egypt for hundreds of years. But at the beginning of the book of Exodus, uh, God raises up a guy named Moses, who leads them out of Egypt by God's power. They go through the Red Sea. They take a sharp right turn. They go to Mount Sinai, and there they're given the Mosaic Law. And it's not just the Ten Commandments, but the most, the Abrahamic promises, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were given foundational promises. On top of that, we've got, for the Old Testament people of God, the Mosaic Covenant, and he gave the people that were descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to whom the land, promised land, belonged this covenant that was a conditional covenant. And as a nation, if you follow this covenant, I'll bless you as you represent me. If you disobey it deliberately, I'll send prophets who will be like district attorneys to indict you, but to encourage you to get to the right program. And if you don't get there, I'll eventually have to kick you out of the land, at least temporarily. So. We've got Moses leading them out of the land. Moses and his generation fail at conquering the land because they refuse to take it in faith, but the next generation after Joshua, under Joshua, conquered the promised land in seven years, and then we have two hundred and ninety nine years called the period of the judges, and they weren't judges, they were local and tribal leaders that took care of the insurgents, the terrorists that were left after the conquest of the land. Uh, the last judge and the first king anointing prophet was a guy named Samuel. You read about him in 1 Samuel. And Samuel anoints Saul, who's the first king of the United Tribes of Israel. Saul's followed by David. David's followed by Solomon. Solomon reigns from 970 to 930 BC. And he builds the temple. So we don't have the tent, the portable central sanctuary, the tabernacle. Now we have a temple in Jerusalem. Now, when Solomon dies, the nation splits. The 12 tribes turn into two nations, not one. The 10 northern tribes form the kingdom of Israel. The two southern tribes, Judah and Benjamin, form the nation of Judah. And last week, we talked about Second Kings 2. We saw a bald man, uh, 42 boys, and two bears, remember? And we saw Elisha interacting with a group of a street gang of people who were going to kill him. And we saw God protecting that prophet. So we put Elisha and his mentor, Elijah, at roughly 850 B.C., and we talked about them last week. Now today we're going to talk about a different prophet. Not the prophet Elisha, but the prophet Isaiah. Now what's one big difference between Isaiah the prophet and Elisha? Elijah didn't write any of the scripture, okay? Uh, Isaiah is a written prophet, so we actually have his material, right? So Isaiah is living here about 700 B.C. under the four kings that were mentioned in verse 1 of his book. And let's put that, his ministry roughly there on that timeline. So we're moving uh towards the end of the Old Testament. You know, the, the Old Testament ends very incompletely, Jack, because, I mean, the Old Testament has promised us that God's going to send a Savior through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and... At the end of the Old Testament, they're still waiting, right? Even though God has taken them from out of the land, exiled back into the land. They've rebuilt a temple, but they're waiting. They're waiting. They're waiting. And what happens? You've got the 440, 430 silent years between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament story. John the Baptist says, Behold, the Messiah is on the ground. Get ready. He's here. And so all of Israel readily embraced him, right? So what happened? Now uh, he came into his own. You know, he's in the world, and the world was made by him, but the world did not uh, know him. He came into his own, his own did not receive him, but to each individual who does, he's given the gift of eternal life. So we're going to talk about Isaiah. So he's one of the spokesmen of God, one of those district attorney kind of a guys that indicted God's people for treaty violations, the Mosaic Treaty, and also makes prophecies about his people short-term and prophecies that will include us. In the long term, uh, he predicts all kinds of interesting things you can historically validate. But let's jump into the flow of the book. And this is a very simple uh, kind of basic diagram of the Book of Isaiah. And just having something like this can help you start making sense of it if you start reading it through or reading portions of it. Basically, we've got a finicky. Hey, let me tell you what I want for Pastor Appreciation Day. Okay in addition to a $500 uh, Callaway driver, right? No, you don't do that. Um, give me a laser pointer that works. Will, will somebody please do that? Uh, no, actually, I've, I, several of you have given me laser points, pointers that work, and I lose them. Maxine gave me this, but this isn't a laser pointer. It's the thing you use to torment cats. You can buy it <laughs> at Walmart for $3. And uh, it's built, I think, somewhere in the back of a a real factory in Taiwan. It doesn't work under pressure. It's kind of like me, you know? But, uh, yeah, what you want to see big picture of Isaiah is, yeah, he's making prophecies both near and short term, both things that will happen within 100, 200 years of his own lifetime and stuff that hasn't even happened yet. Uh, but the first part of the book emphasizes condemnation for Judah's violation of the Mosaic Covenant. The second major part of the book, is comfort that despite their sin, salvation's available, and God's program for Israel is not going to uh, be punted away by God despite their inconsistencies. And we see the main character of the book isn't Isaiah, it isn't Hezekiah, it isn't Jotham, it isn't Uzziah, uh, it is the Messiah, the Christ, who's going to come, who's going to set up this incredible future world, but first is going to suffer as a sacrificial lamb to make all of us savable. Now, that's the kind of chart you tend to see at one level, and there's a parenthesis in the middle that's history, which talks about how God sovereignly delivered the southern kingdom, the little southern kingdom, from the Assyrian nation that had just destroyed the bigger ten-tribe nation in the north, and that's that's an amazing story, and I know James uh, has read that many times. It's really interesting what happens there. But we're doing big picture today, so you know typically that's what you're going to see, and they uh, move on to the next thing. But if you really study the content of the book, um, you have an interesting kind of thing he does with his material, and it's an inverted parallelism that's called chiasm. And a, the simplest kind of chiasm would be when when the uh, when the going gets tough, the tough. Get going. You ever had a coach tell you that? When the going gets tough, the tough get going. When the going, let's make that A, gets tough, let's make that B. The tough, let's make that B prime, gets going, let's make that A prime. When you connect the dots, you get an X. It's an inverted parallelism. That looks like an X to you, but in Greek, that's a key. That's the letter key, first letter in Christ. So it's called a chiasm. And so this is inverted parallelism. Now, it gets interesting, because the very first part of the book is a, a call to repentance, a call to national repentance to Isaiah's generation, trying to convict them of uh, their sin, violating the Mosaic Covenant, uh, even though it's tempered by positive prophecies about ultimate long-term restoration. That's the very first thing he does in the book, for 12 chapters almost. The very last thing he does in the book is call the, the nation of Israel, his nation, to repentance. Uh, and he tries to convict them. So the very first thing, the very last thing, are the same thing, okay? just like the top of a the, of the hamburger bun, right? But it gets a little bit more complicated than that because the second thing that he does in the book is he emphasizes God's promise that the proud sovereign of Babylon who would eventually humble and destroy Isaiah's nation, Judah, and destroy the first temple, he will be humbled. He'll have a short-term Reign of terror, but he himself will be humbled. That's the second main thing he talks about in the book. The second to the last thing he emphasizes in the book is the polar opposite of that. As opposed to Nebuchadnezzar, we've got a promise that the humble servant of the Lord, as opposed to the proud sovereign of Babylon, will be exalted after he's rejected and brutalized. And of course, that's the Lord Jesus Christ. Third thing he talks about as a warning, don't trust in foreign governments. And the Old Testament Jews love to trust in foreign governments instead of God to take care of them. And, I mean, Ahaz himself will look to the Assyrians to protect him. That's not a good idea. And showing showing some of their VIPs around uh, all their treasure and temple uh, treasures they've got. And that just made a list for them. Uh, To me, uh, we've been to China. Uh, You know, we've got to interact with China. I don't want to get too buddy-buddy with China. I mean, Uh, They wanna they wanna rule the world, man, just so you'll know. Uh, And they just they'll tell you that if you read their their stuff. But don't trust in foreign governments. The third to the last thing, don't trust in false gods, the false gods of the foreign uh, governments. And then in the very middle of the book, he emphasizes trust the Lord over the Assyrians that in fact are repulsed by God in that portion of the book. And you might say, well, that would be very helpful to me, Brad, if I lived in 8th century B.C. and I was worried about the Assyrians. But I live in the 21st century and it doesn't affect me a bit. Well, here's the timeless message is, love, trust, and obey the Lord no matter what the current enemies are. And there'll always be some, right? Somebody once said, every Christian that I know are either in a crisis, is either in a crisis, just coming out of a crisis, or just about to go into a crisis. So you're not special if you're in a crisis. I mean, everybody gets them. Now no extra in charge for this but in the British Museum there is a uh, looks like a pillar Natalie that they used to chisel uh, information about the illustrious history of the Assyrians this was an Assyrian artifact that was dug up by archaeologists 100 years ago and it's a little bit like pravda in the old Soviet Union only good things happen to Assyrians in the Assyrian uh, court records but that court record records several things that you see in the Old Testament, records the exploits of King Sennacherib, who was the uh, 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 Assyrian king that conquered the northern kingdom as Isaiah predicted he would. It also describes the Taylor Prism, which is Babylon- Assyrian propaganda, talks about his uh, attack against the nation of Judah, the little kingdom, and his siege of Jerusalem, and also mentions his unusual decision to leave and we know what happened is that the angel of, of Yahweh destroyed 185,000 Assyrians overnight. Uh, historians want to explain that away as some kind of really radical 24-hour virus that killed a whole bunch of his army. But he literally says, and the Assyrians did not, they took no quarter. They took no prisoners. They brutalized people. They didn't surround cities and leave. But this one time they did, and he said, I had Jerusalem surrounded like a bird in a cage, and then I decided to go home. That's what it says in his propaganda, because he didn't want to tell you the bad news. His army got wiped out. Now, let's actually look at some text, because sometimes when I do studies like this, uh, I know I can get jazzed about some of these details, but I think the power's in the text. So in your notes there, I've got a list of a, of a bunch of especially cool passages in the book. <coughs> And we're not even going to have time to read them all today. I'm just going to cherry pick here. But look at Isaiah 2. Verse 2. Isaiah chapter 2 verse 2. And in the context of him indicting the nation for their violations of the Mosaic law, uh, he also has some encouraging ideas about where God is eventually going to get humanity and all redeemed humanity. And he says this, and this is one of my favorite statements in Isaiah. Isaiah 2, 2. In the last days, uh, after the what we would call the second advent, connection to and after the second advent of Jesus, the glorious appearing of the Messiah as a lion. In the last days, the mountain of the house of the Lord, uh, the mountain stands for human government, will be established as chief of the mountains. Jesus Christ is going to reign over the world for a thousand years from Jerusalem after his literal, non-deniable, supernatural second advent. And this is Isaiah in 700 B.C. predicting that. Uh, In the last days, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as chief of the mountains, be raised above all the other hills, and all the other nations will stream to it to worship the real God. And many peoples, ethnoi in the Greek, in the Septuagint, Will come and say, come let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways, and that we may walk in his paths." Can you imagine the UN during the millennium, if there is such a thing? I don't think there will be a UN during the millennium, but if there was for them to pass a unanimously approved resolution that all the nations should send representatives to Jews to find to Israel to find out about Jesus, wouldn't that be great? That would be a wonderful place to live in. We're gonna see that. He's prophesying that. For the law, the Torah, will go forth from Zion, Jerusalem, and the word, uh, of uh, the Lord from Jerusalem. And He, the Messiah, will judge between the nations. I guess it won't be you and it'll be Jesus in Jerusalem, right? He'll render decisions among many peoples, and they'll hammer their swords in the plowshares, farming implements, in the spears and pruning hooks. Nations will not lift up sword against the nation, and never again will they learn war. So after the second advent of Christ, which is the ultimate judgment in the book of Revelation, Revelation 19, major theme in the Old and New Testament. God's justice isn't pretty, Kylene, but it's always preceded by God's grace. But in the aftermath of that, we're going to have a 1,000-year a situation on earth as it exists now, in an ideal state where Messiah will judge the world and there'll be no more wars. There'll be no more need to pray for active military because we won't have an active military. Now people, you know, people who are signing, you know, whatever, uh, who was the prime minister? Neville Chamberlain who signed a sheet of paper with Hitler in 37 and said, we have peace in our time, you know, look at it, I got a sheet of paper from him, everything's gonna be fine. You know, people do things like that and they'll quote verses like this, you know, we're gonna hammer our swords in the plowshares. This is going to happen only by the supernatural power of Jesus Christ as the lion of the tribe of Judah. It's not going to happen because the UN passes re- resolution or politicians sign a sheet of paper. Uh, I appreciate people trying to mitigate, uh, violence. I'm all for that. But if you put all your ultimate, you know, all your eggs in that basket, you're going to get disappointed because somebody always drops the basket. You know, the, the saying is if you put all your eggs in one basket. You better watch the basket, right? But see, I'm clumsy. I've always been a little clumsy. But in my old age, I, I drop a lot of stuff. It's unbelievable, you know. So the problem with if you put all your eggs in one basket, you know, the problem with that, you drop your basket. You got a messy basket. You know, I, I recently, when the Jamie and Hit family was coming a couple weeks ago, I managed to drop. Debbie carefully bought, what, 18 eggs now? Did, did the egg, did the, did the chickens actually lay them in those styrofoam cartons? How did they get there, you know? So you have 18 eggs, which is a very nervous time for me, and I was trying to wipe off the counter. Boom, knock the thing down. But you know what? I'm pretty good. Only two of those eggs broke. But it made a mess, I'll tell you what. So don't put all your eggs in the basket of the UN or whoever the current president is, and God bless all of them, and I, I hope we don't have major wars. I'm all for that, but... Don't trust too much into all that stuff. I mean, we've got to look beyond that. Isaiah chapter 9. Now, people will read this a lot during Christmas time, uh, which is great, except they fail to notice that only the first part of verse 6 is talking about the first coming of the Messiah. The rest of it is talking about the second coming. So you have like a 2,000-year gap <laughs> uh, between the first clause, which really should be punctuated as a sentence, and the second one, but depending on your English translation. But look at Isaiah 9-6. Talking about a prophecy about Jesus, Jack. This is, in 700 BC, this is Isaiah predicting the coming of Jesus for the first time and the second time. Uh, for a child will be born to us. The Messiah will be a human being, not an alien or an angel. He'll be descendant of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Family, tribe of Judah. Family of David and Solomon. Right. So a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. So that's Christmas, right? And ultimately, not the day he's born, not during his whole first uh, advent, but after his second advent, the government. What do you mean? The government rests on his shoulders. We just read about it in chapter two. He assumes you read two before you read nine. You know. Uh, in the last day, the mountain of the house of the Lord, government of the house of the Lord will be established as chief of the mountains, and all the nations will come to his, him and his government. Government will rest on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Power, Father, Prince of Peace. There'll be no end to the increase of his government or of his peace on the throne of David. He's going to be the descendant of David, or his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on forevermore. But how's that going to happen? By UN resolution? By Southern Baptists going to pass a rule? And Jesus is going to come back because they're going to put a date there he's going to come back and do that for him? You know, uh, Dallas Seminary? I'm a Dallas Seminary guy. They don't have that kind of power. How's, how's it going to happen, Sonia? You know, look at the very last part of verse 7. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. And you could translate that to power. That's called the second advent. That's called Revelation 19. Zechariah 12, right? It's not gonna be pretty, but it's gonna happen. Okay. Let's look at, uh, man, we're skipping a lot of good stuff. Look at chapter 24, verse 19. Totally cherry picking here. Uh, there's a lot of great stuff in this book, as you can imagine. But look at chapter 24, verse 19. I think. Yeah. Talking about the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. The earth is broken asunder. The earth is split through. The earth is shaken violently. In fact, there's a passage in Revelation that says the stars start shaking, and the stars aren't shaking. The observation post, when the earth starts convulsing like that, if you're on a moving platform, you're looking around, it looks like everything's moving. It's because you're on a moving platform. So I, I take that very literally in connection with just before the second advent, the earth reels to and fro like a drunkard. Now I know that you know some people are going to read in that an asteroid's going to hit or an alien flying saucer hits the earth or something like that. But in biblical context, we're talking about events leading up to the second advent of Christ, the zeal of the Lord of hosts setting up this ideal form of uh, present earthly status quo. Um, the earth reels to and fro like a drunkard, totters like a shack. For its transgression is heavy upon it. It'll fall. The world system as we know it never to rise again. It'll happen in that moment. The Lord will punish the host of heaven on high and the kings of heaven on earth. They'll be gathered together. Uh, The moon, verse 23, will be abased and the sun ashamed. We read about that in Revelation 6. For the Lord of hosts, the Lord of the heavenly armies will reign on Mount Zion in connection with all of these cosmic disasters, including a second advent to wipe out the goats and his glory will be before all the elders. Uh, yeah, you got to balance the, the bitter with the sweet here. It's not a pretty picture. Look at Isaiah twenty six nineteen. Sometimes you hear scholars on the Discovery Channel say the Old Testament never taught the concept of life after death, and much less a bodily resurrection for believers. But in fact, Daniel teaches it, Job teaches it, and Isaiah teaches it. Uh, your dead will live, what does that mean? Their corpses will rise. God's going to take all those uh, atoms that made up your body and put it back together like the one Jesus had at his resurrection, supernaturally transformed. You who lie in the dust, awake, and will shout for joy. So I just couldn't pass that up because you are going to hear that on some of the uh, documentaries. Uh, people are going to tell you that uh, Isaiah didn't say stuff like that. But trust me, that's what it's saying. Look at uh, chapter 40. Isaiah 40. Verse 28. Now, this is a, in a larger context, and we don't have the time to develop it. But let me point out one thing to you. you when you get there, Isaiah 40, verse 28, uh, you realize the Bible teaches the earth is flat and that the uh, earth is the center of the solar system, right? doesn't teach that. In fact, it teaches quite the opposite. And since we're in verse twenty eight, Steve, let's slide over to verse twenty two just for there's no extra charge for this part, okay? Uh, it is he talking about Yahweh, God the Father, who sits above the circle of the earth. Look that word up in the Hebrew Brown driver and Briggs, the standard lexicon, all the translators use. It means sphere. God, as it were, is above the sphere of the earth, and compared to him its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. That's a quote from the Karate Kid, by the way. You know, and he right, Grasshopper, you must do this. Uh, Who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in? But that's a statement that says the earth is a sphere. Okay, so just if you need that, it's good. Okay, Riley, if you need that, uh, write that down. Uh, look at twenty-eight. Do you not know? Have you not heard the everlasting God? That means infinite. Okay, no beginning, no end. The Lord the crater at the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. So you can't wear him out with your prayer request. Now, prayer is a grace channel of communication where a believer like Dale seeks and submits to God's will, knowing that our very prayers are part of the uh, amalgam of the events that God uses to work out his will in time. So uh, you're not going to wear him out. God doesn't become weary or tired. So by the way, so what's he doing resting after only working for six days? That's another one the the critics will throw at you. Well, you're talking about God being omnipotent, but he has to rest after only working seven days. I mean, I mean, Peg, you're a nurse. You've had to work late shifts and seven days a week sometimes. You didn't get a day off necessarily all the time. I worked work for my family business and uh you know how many days we got off every year for good behavior? We got all day Christmas off. Other than that, the College Street Golf Complex was alive and for business. Uh, <laughs> driving range balls, putting green, and nine-hole golf course. And guess who's cutting the greens all summer long and right after college? I mean, we only had one day off. So people will say, well, golly, I mean, God took a day off after only six days. It, when, when when biblical characters rest, it doesn't mean they're tired necessarily. It means they're finished. You know, you know we have the death of Christ, The resurrection three days later. What happens 40 days after that? The ascension. What happens after the ascension? Christ, what does he do in heaven? He sits down at the right hand of the throne. Why? Is he tired? He's finished with the work of redemption, David. All the work to get you to heaven's done. When you trusted him for it, it counts for you. So God rests at the end of the creation week because he was finished. That's why he stopped, right? Not because he was tired. But anyway, God doesn't become... A uh, weary. Now watch this. As we're praying to him about some traumatic thing, he won't get weary lit hearing it, but we may not understand exactly how he's working in it, because his understanding is inscrutable. What does that mean? You can't understand it. It's beyond your ability to comprehend. It's, it makes sense the infinite God might be smarter than we are. You know, you know it's just the way it is. He gets stretched to the weary, and to him who lacks might, he increases power. Though youths grow weary and tired, even first class, you know, Olympic athletes who are 18, 21 years old or whatever, they have a breaking point. And vigorous young men stumble badly. Those who wait on the Lord, I'm gonna keep myself from singing this, okay? Will renew their strength. They shall rise up with wings as eagles. I said I wouldn't sing it, but I did. Okay? Stop the tape, okay? Uh, those who wait in the Lord will renew their strength. They'll mount up with wings like eagles. They'll run and not get weary. They'll walk and not become faint. So we always say, teach us, Lord, teach us, Lord, to wait. So if you wonder where that famous statement comes from, it's not from Romans, it's not from Ephesians, it's not from the Gospel of John. It's from Isaiah chapter 40, right? Let's go to uh, Isaiah 43. Look at verse 10, really the middle of verse 10. I'm cherry-picking, I'm not, I'm not doing the kind of contextual stuff we normally do here, just so we can give you exposure to a lot of good data here. I love this. This is uh, Isaiah 43, middle of verse 10. This is uh, an oracle statement where God is speaking to the prophet, and he speaks, he gets you to the direct quote, as it were. Before me there was no God formed, and there will be none after me. I, even I, am the Lord. Not a Lord, but the Lord. There's no Savior besides me. It is I who declared and saved and proclaimed. And there was no strange God among you. So you are my witnesses, declares the Lord. And I am God. Even from eternity, I am He. There is none who can deliver out of my hand. I act and who can reverse it. That's a rhetorical question. The correct answer is nobody can, right? Look at chapter 44, verse 6. Thus says says the Lord, the, the King of Israel and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first. I am the last. There's no God besides me. Who's like me? Let him proclaim and declare it. Yes, let him recount it to me in order from the time that I established the ancient nation. Let them declare them the things that are coming and the events that are going to take place. Do not tremble. Do not be afraid. Have I not long since announced it to you? And you are my witness. Is there any God besides me or any other rock? I know of none. So God's saying, I don't, I'm not aware of any other gods. So I'm pretty sure there are none, and uh, you don't have to worry about things like that. Uh, Now, sometimes people misread Psalm 96. Psalm 96, in most Bible questions, Nancy, are in the verse before the verse after. So just keep reading some verses and get some more context. But Psalm 96 says, Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. He's to be feared above all the other gods. I thought he just said, there ain't no other gods, David. But Psalm 96 says, God is, our God is to be feared above all the other gods. That's verse 4, go to the next verse. Because all the gods of the people are idols. They're not real. They're figments of people's imagination. That's, that's why, right? Go to, uh, chapter 65. The last couple of chapters will just blow you away. But, uh, let's look at 65 verse 17. And again, we're talking about status quo on earth after the second coming of the Messiah, after the second coming of Jesus. Uh, behold, I'm going to create new heavens and new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered to come to mind. But be glad and rejoice, for behold, I'm going to create uh, in Jerusalem rejoicing, and I and I I also will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. So we see that several times in the Old Testament where he said, God says, "I'm going to really." Enjoy being with you, and that with no sin separating us. And there'll no longer be heard in Jerusalem the voice of weeping, the sound of crying. No longer will there be an infant who lives, but only a few days, no birth defects, or an old man who does not live out his his days. For the youth, somebody who's considered to be young in the millennial kingdom, will die at a hundred. We'll talk about, uh, millennial kingdom Pretty soon, don't have time to go into it right now though, but uh, trust me, the millennial kingdom is from the second advent of Christ for a thousand years until we get to the eternal state and we're going to have the survivors of the end times and physical bodies living in that world system where Jesus is going to be ruling visibly from Jerusalem and they're going to have physical children and they're going to have continue to have human beings with regular bodies. We're before that, we're going to be raptured first, we'll have a spiritual body, we won't be married, but there will be people living in physical Conditions, but greatly enhanced conditions. The one who does not reach an age of a hundred will be thought to be accursed. Uh, They shall build houses, inhabit them in Jerusalem, no fear about Hamas or Hezbollah. Uh, They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and somebody else inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat it. For as in the lifetime of a tree, so shall the days of my people be, as my chosen ones shall wear out the work of their hands." They will not labor in vain or build children for calamity, for they are the offspring, the blessed one of the Lord and their descendants with them. And then chapter 66, the very last chapter, verses 1 and 2. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where then is a house you could build for me? I don't need your help. You know, God doesn't need our help. He'll let us glorify Him, but He doesn't need our help. He can get by fine without us. And where is the place that I may rest? For my hand made all these things, thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord. But to this one I will look, and I'd like to leave you with this, to him, who, who does God look upon and bless, to him who is humble, and contrite of spirit, and who trembles at my word. Wow, that sounds like childlike faith to me. That sounds like uh, uh, active, receptive trust to me. Now, let me talk about the main character uh, of the book of Isaiah and we'll, and, we'll, and we'll finish. The main character of the book of Isaiah is what we would call Jesus the Christ. But they, uh, in context, Isaiah calls it uh, this person the servant of the Lord, the servant of Yahweh. Now, there are three basic words for God in the Old Testament. Uh, Elohim, in the beginning, God. Elohim created the heavens and the earth. Lord, which is translated in English with lowercase o-r-d, which just means the, the 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 sovereign one. But it can refer to human beings with power or even false gods that don't exist, but based on what the people believe about them. But the word capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that's the way we translate this Hebrew form as convention. So you'll know it's that special covenantal name, personal name for God. This is the one that is stressed throughout. And the main character... The book of Isaiah is someone who's called the servant of the capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, Lord, the God of salvation, who turns out to be equal in power and attributes to the Lord. And you have four cool snapshots of that. We looked at Isaiah 53 a few weeks ago. But in Isaiah 42 and Isaiah 48, we see the servant of the Lord will save Israel will be a light to the Gentiles, even though he'll be rejected by Israel, uh, in part because he is a light to the Gentiles. They didn't get it. Isaiah 50 is the third snapshot of the servant of the Lord. He'll be fully obedient to the Lord. He'll be beaten, humiliated, and even spat upon. He'll entrust himself to the Lord and will be ultimately vindicated by the Lord. And then last, a couple weeks ago, we looked at the, uh, the awesome Isaiah 53 passage which actually starts in 52, verse uh, 13. Uh, the Messiah will be the basis of salvation for those who trust in him. He'll be killed as a substitutionary atoning sacrifice. He'll be resurrected from the dead, and he'll be exalted above all others. So you actually have the gospel very clearly taught in the New Testament gospel in the book of Isaiah. You don't have to get to Romans. If you read Isaiah, you find that the Messiah is going to come and pay the sin debt we all owe God, and he'll rise again after he dies to do that, and he'll be resurrected. And so if this pulpit is the cross, uh, and we have a timeline here, Old Testament folks had faith in a promised Messiah who would be the servant of the Lord, the Messiah, the Lamb of God. For us on this side of the New Testament, Old Testament divide, we look back in faith at the provided Savior, but that Savior is... The servant of the Lord, talked about in Isaiah, who pays the sin debt, who rises from the dead, who's now the issue and the issuer of eternal life. And um, you know, what I keep wanting to talk about this, and I mentioned it just in passing in the Old Testament walkthrough, but we're going to have to skip it again because I got too long-winded on some other stuff. But here's what I want to end with. Let's talk about... Uh, this very special little snapshot of of Jesus in Isaiah sixty one, and uh, but look at Luke four. Luke four actually quotes Isaiah sixty one, and make a long story short. And I'm I'm going to be done in about five minutes, so don't panic. Um, Isaiah sixty one predicts the coming of the Messiah. In Luke four, at the very beginning of his ministry. Jesus goes back to his hometown of Nazareth after his baptism, in his temptations. Temptation is and baptism, and uh, we read this: uh, Luke chapter four, verse fourteen. Jesus returned after his temptation, and his baptism, uh, to Galilee, the northern part of Israel, in the power of the Spirit. And news about him spread throughout the surrounding district. He's claiming to be Messiah. He's claiming to be Messiah. Is he claiming to be Messiah? We heard he's claiming to be Messiah. And he began teaching and their synagogues and was praised. He came to Nazareth, we'd been brought up, where he'd been a Tecton, where he'd been a carpenter, and as it was his custom, he went to synagogue on Sabbath, on Saturday, and it happened to be his turn to read. So he went to the front and they went to what they call the tabernacle, which is that little alcave alcove with the Torah in it, and they handed the Torah scroll to him, and they mark mark this this the scroll because they read through it consecutively. And it just happens to be that Saturday, Doug, that Isaiah 61 is the passage that's marked in the Isaiah scroll that wasn't luck. And Jesus reads it. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. But he read it like this. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind and uh, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable... Favorable year of the Lord. He's quoting Isaiah 61. Everybody in that synagogue was familiar with Isaiah 61. They all knew it was the prediction of the Messiah. Uh, they've read it before. They've heard it before. And Jesus is saying, I'm it. I'm the fulfillment of that. Watch this. And he closed the book, and there weren't any books in the first century. They were all scrolls. The, the codex has become uh, available in the 2nd century. So that's a bad translation. Biblios means, means a scroll there. Close the scroll, gives it back to the attendant, he puts it back in the alcove, and Jesus sat down. Now you guys have been Americanized. So you know that Homer came up, and he read the scripture and he prayed, and then he sat down. He went back to the audience. That's not the way rabbis operated. The rabbis, or in this case, the lay people who are reading scripture, would stand to read the scripture in front, then would sit on a stool to explain the meaning of the Scripture. He sat down in front of the group on a scroll as a teacher, as a commentator. And uh, although I sometimes go too long from this pulpit, Jesus, at least this time, went very, very brief. Okay? Closes the book, gives it to the attendant, sits down on the stool to tell the people his interpretation of that passage, and the eyes of the whole synagogue are fixed on him. And he said, here's his message. It's one sentence. The The central idea is the entire content of the uh, message. Today, this scripture, Isaiah 61, has been fulfilled in your hearing. He's got the audacity to say, I am whom Isaiah 61 was talking about. I am the fulfillment of Isaiah 51, Isaiah 42, and Isaiah 49, and Isaiah 50, and Isaiah 53, capped off by capstone of Isaiah 61. I am it. And so they all bowed down and worshipped him, right? They had a mini-riot. I mean, who do you think you are? You didn't even go to seminary. Yeah, you know, your mind? You know, if the establishment hears about this in Jerusalem, we're all going to be in big trouble. Um, yeah, is that a mind-blower? I mean, that's worth the prospect mission, knowing that Jesus quotes from Isaiah 61. Everybody knew it, but, uh, you know, they still didn't like it. Uh, now, here's the, one more cool thing. I said I'm going to stop and I am, but uh, I say, I lie a lot, actually, but uh, sometimes people say, well, the Trinity is something that was invented in 325 at the Council of Nicaea. Now, the Trinity is the way God has always been, which is one reason He doesn't really need us, but He graciously wants us, right? He's fine as He is. He did not need us to love. They have perfect love within it. But uh yeah, uh, you can see the Trinity in many Old Testament passages, but this is my favorite one, because and just let's see the way the Lord says it. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel of the poor. All three members of the Trinity there, uh, uh, Gene. The Spirit of the Lord is the Holy Spirit, right? Who's upon the Messiah. The Messiah is me there. And the Lord, all caps, is God the Father. So... When you hear people say the Trinity was invented later, it's a pagan thing, it goes back to day one. I mean, Genesis 1, let us make man in our image, right, kind of thing. So let's stop like this. Uh, the book of Isaiah is all about the amazing grace of the unbelievably great one true triune God centered on Christ in his first and second advent. And you can see why maybe uh, Satan is happy for you to be too intimidated to read the thing because it just drips With gospel truth, it has the entire gospel in this book. You don't even need Romans or Ephesians or the gospel of John to know the gospel if you've got the book of Isaiah. And so our invitation to you, as always, is if you've never from the depth of your heart recognized your sin and your guilt before God and your inability to do anything to fix it, and you're willing to throw yourself on the mercy of the Messiah, he will save you. Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. I can't fix it. You can, and I want you to. And the more you read the scripture, you realize it's on every page. It's the whole point of the Bible is to get us centered on Jesus. Uh, most of us are believers here, so let's just uh, do what the book of Isaiah does. Let's get centered on Christ, especially this time of the year. You know, this, this season between Thanksgiving and Christmas in this increasingly secular culture, if anybody in the secular culture is going to let you kind of broach certain specifics about Jesus. It might be now. I realize that they want to, they don't like to say Christmas, they want to say happy holidays, but I think that's turning too. But this is a, can be a very strategic time for you to live and share your faith, even at your office party, okay, when everybody else is going for other reasons. You can actually be a witness, and you know the truth of God impels us uh, to live it and share it. So let's have a word of prayer. Lord, please open our eyes to see the depths of the uh, of the riches of your truth. In books like this one, which are kind of obscure to us, because we do spend a lot more time in the New Testament, and rightly so. But sometimes just the length of this book scares us, and we're afraid to to even approach it. And I pray that today we've lowered that intimidation level a little bit uh, and that you'd be glorified in that. Uh, help us to center on Christ during this Christ my sis, series, season as we're kind of on the glide path between Thanksgiving now and uh, the day we're going to celebrate the birth of Christ. And I pray you give all of us who are believers strategic opportunities uh, to share uh, the good news that Jesus came as a lamb to die for the sins of the world. And he's going to come back as a sovereign to rule. And there's no reason uh, our friends and our neighbors can't receive him Uh uh, apart from your grace and your, in your unction. So we do pray that we'd be able to be good stewards of this season. I thank you for this time together this morning and in, in the word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.